0: the studios of teeing it up in the swamps of jersey this is teeing it up with jeremy showing for wednesday july se- uh, tuesday sorry it's not wednesday yet tuesday july 17 2017 i'm trying to rush the open ryan I'm, I'm i'm just trying to get it here too soon uh we do welcome in the preview of the open championship brian ballingy from the golf news net hello sir Hey Jeremy, how are you? Will you be up at 1.30 in the morning? You've got two young kids. Will you be up at one thirty Eastern on Wednesday night, Thursday morning to watch the start of coverage?
1: Absolutely not. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Uh, I will probably fall asleep in my downstairs chair just be- recently reasonably before the coverage comes on at like 11 o'clock, maybe eleven thirty, and then I'll just- maybe I'll record it and try to get through it as quickly as I can to kind of catch up once we get up about 6.30 and
0: then go from there. It's hard, though, you know, showing, you know, it, it, it's one thing when ESPN came on at 4 a.m. and you can kind of, you know, tape that first, like, couple of hours and get caught up. Now that it's first ball, last ball, it's it, it's a lot to get caught up on. Or, or it, 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 it It's not like one, you know, it's not like the first ten minutes are going to catch you all up. You actually have to go through the whole, you know, Stretch of time to get caught up to it, so it's not as convenient as it used to be. Um, we will get to Carnoustie and get to the Open in a second. You had a really interesting golf week that I think a lot of um, golf aficionados who listen to this podcast would appreciate. So, just walk us through your last seven, eight, nine days because you did some really cool stuff.
1: I did so. Uh, I guess we'll start back going over the July 4th holiday. It can't even go back that far. So yeah. So I was in the middle of Tennessee. My, my in-laws live there. Um, we've kind of made a thing of it uh, around Independence Day, the last four or five years, typically Independence Day, where we have a big roast and have a lot of fun. And, and one of those days, I wanted to go play golf. And I wanted to go to play and Cove. And to um, had the fortunate opportunity to go down there and see Rob Collins' place in, in South Pittsburgh which is right on the border of Alabama, Tennessee, and Georgia, and just had an awesome time going around. We went around one and a half times before a Lightning pulled us off the golf course, but it, it was everything i dreamed, everything I'd heard of, uh, and then some. And just in this idyllic setting, just you're in this kind of valley playing incredible golf, That I don't know how Rob Collins came up with the idea of putting this here uh, – I don't know how it came to him, but I'm glad that it did. Uh, so then I brought along two guys who come on our annual golf trip and they were, they're not used to playing this kind of golf course. Um, and frankly, most people aren't, but it, it just blew them away in a, in a, really fun way to watch them react to it. So that, that's one part. That's one piece I'm hopefully writing for next week. And then, um, Came home for basically a day and then flew into Louisville, Kentucky to go to French Lick Resort in southern Indiana. Never been to Indiana. So went there for a media trip of sorts and then also to play in the Symmetra Tours Pro-Am for the event that they have there. Now the second year for the Donald Ross Classics. They have three courses at French Lick Resort, which is also combined with West Baden Resort, which is something I'll in a different town, even though they're a half mile apart, but anyhow, so they have two courses. They have a die course, which is hosted Big Ten Championships, Men's Championships, the Senior LPGA Championship, uh, PGA Sectional Championships, and probably most notably, otherwise the Senior PGA Championship. And it can be stretched out to eighty-one hundred yards from the teeth. It's an absolutely outrageous length of golf course. 8,100 yards, but we played in about 6,300 twice uh, over the course of three days and had a, a really, really nice experience there. And then on Wednesday in between those two rounds, we played in the Pro-Am for the Symmetra Tour play with uh, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Sokol. She's, I think, 25 and went to the University of Virginia. She's number three on the money list this year, won early, early in the year, almost got to the LPJ last year through the money list. I think she finished 13th or 14th on the money list but looks like she's in really good position for this year and had not played in a Pro-Am round of, of really any kind in seven years so uh, this is a Champions Tour event with Mark Weedy, and uh, I mean she's I think still getting used to the idea of playing in all these things all the time but we had a really nice time with her had a good day, good scramble, plenty of beer, good golf, lots of fun so then that was kind of the end of the trip and drove up to Indy and then up to Valparaiso to go visit a friend of mine who comes on our golf trip, got the trip of Valpo, saw Bryce Drew's house, and then on Friday went from Valparaiso about an hour and a half to Chicago, well, really Wheaton, uh, which is a Chicago suburb, to go see the second day of the U.S. Senior Women's Open, and uh, it was one of the most pleasant, most enjoyable tournament viewing, tournament coverage experiences of my life to see this this inaugural tournament unfold, to see everyone so happy to be there competing uh, that they finally had something like this obviously Chicago Golf Club is a remarkable architectural place having first been designed by McDonald and then Raynor comes in what 20 years later and kind of shines it up a little bit more and they've redone some work in the last few years I forget who redid it but maybe it was dope but whoever redid it did a, a very nice job and just to watch the competition for you know, six, seven hours uh, to watch various different people along the age spectrum from barely fifty to almost eighty, and uh, it could not have been more fun. And I'm so glad that I, I made that part of the trip to go to go see that.
0: Um, let's go back to Sweetman's Cove for a moment. Um, the no laying up guys went there last year too. What is so unique about it? What what you know just from a golf perspective? Um, there there's something that seems to be piquing people's interest. What is it? About Chicago golf? Oh, Sweeten's. Um, yeah. Uh, Sweeten's. I don't know
1: how to describe it well, other than it's just kind of a shell shock from your normal golf course. And I, I mean that in the sense that when you go play mo- most golf courses, first, they're mostly public, second, they're all kind of by the book. I mean, there's fairway, there's some bunkers to the left or the right, you hit toward a green, it's pretty circular, it's not that large, there's some subtle breaks, there's a bunker or two, maybe a water hazard, and that's the end. Right. Sweetens is not like that. Sweetens is wall-to-wall fairway, except for bunkers, which are very precise, For their positioning They're not large But they're not tiny They are designed to make the golfer Think They're not designed to catch good shots They're designed for you to work around them And that makes the usage of them Really brilliant The variety of holes is extremely good I mean no hole feels Truly the same Um, The piece of property is not that large So a couple of holes are about the same length But they don't feel the same they play differently. And I think that the green complexes are just riveting. I mean, they're, they're, for one, large. The fourth hole is about 165 yards most days. But the green complex is 20,000 square feet. It's the largest in the United States. The hole before that is a par 5. There are two in the first three holes. That's 5'10", five, 5'20", five in the back and the green's probably 60 yards wide and, you know, eight deep, nine deep. So, I mean, it's it's not quite that size of square footage, but it's pretty close. And you have those two holes, and then you follow up with probably one of the best short par fours I've ever played, and it just kind of all builds up to a really good finish on a very short par three that just feels like if you're you're probably going to play it twice, you're going this far to go play this place. So it's a really great turnhole, and it's a good way to finish a match, too. So what Rob did with the land that he had available is just, it's spectacular. And you can experience that kind of thing at, like, a Sand Valley or a Bandin, stream Streamsong, these, these cabots, these kinds of modern resorts right. where, where you get your Hanses, your Dokes, McClay Kids, you go down the line, Court Crenshaw... Of great architects building these courses, and they're they're meant to be mind blowing. There, but you you pay a mind blowing fee to go play play them. I mean, you're paying two hundred fifty bucks per round. You can play twice at Sweet Cove, so you get your eighteen holes in for fifty five dollars with a cart, hmm. that's absurd. I mean, that's an incredible value, and it it demonstrates. I I believe it demonstrates what's possible for public access and municipal golf, where uh, you don't want to play that kind of golf course every day, probably. You probably want to throw in a, a fairly benign, easy golf course every now and then. Right. You want something different and something that'll make you think and challenge you all the way around and be a tremendous amount of fun at the same time. That's sweet Cove. That's what golf can be. Maybe on the extremes to some extent. It's depending on how you feel about golf course architecture. But... It's something you could play all the time and never get bored. And I think that's what people want from their golf.
0: That's fascinating. And and I I can see why the No Laying Up guys, too, who who have come to appreciate unique golf architecture, um, would also have had a blast down there. Just to finish up, the Chicago Golf Club uh, and uh, U.S. Senior Women's Open bit, that was Tom Doak who came in in 2002 um, to... um, uh, make some changes and on the subject of the joyousness of attending that event Shane Bacon tweeted afterwards that she that he has never seen a group of people more genuinely happy and excited to be playing in a golf tournament no matter the state of their game and I, and I think that says something because as you and I both know as much as you know, players love playing in majors and, and and tournaments. There are some weeks they just don't want to be there. They, their games stink. They know they'll miss the cut. They miss home. They have personal issues going on. And, and Shane basically in that tweet said every single person was absolutely thrilled to be there.
1: I got that sense too. Um, so like the second thing I saw walking in was well, first, first thing was Nancy Lopez walking to the first tee, like in a rush to, to do the afternoon wave as the first honorary first tee starter, Right. which I thought was remarkable. I mean, she she could have been able to play, she had knee surgery, uh, knee replacement, she's having another knee replacement done later this year, so she's hoping to play next year, but she thought so much of this championship and what it meant for women's golf that she wanted to be a part of it and was willing to, as a legend of the game, be the first tee starter. Uh, I think that tells you a lot about Nancy Lopez, but... The the next thing I saw were two women who were... And I don't know who they were because I hadn't really looked up all that much. But two women going from 18 to 1, making the turn. And they were just smiling, arm in arm, like, you know, arm over arm, talking to each other, having a great time. They were just so happy that this had happened, that they were getting to do this together and to get a moment in the sun. And I, I... I've never seen people happier to be in a golf tournament. Um, It it ranged from people who are highly competitive players, like Julie Inkster and and Laura Davies, who have still the ability to win on the LPGA Tour, but that this meant something for them, bridging the gap between the end of their LPGA careers and whatever comes next. And then also on the other end of the spectrum, really three parts of it, but the other part being the Joanne Carners the Hollis Stacy, Sandra Palmers of the world, who are older and have won a billion USGA championships between them and finally got their proper recognition in an event that they could kind of wait, have a send-off. Yeah. And and that went really well. And then a good example, I think, of kind of in the middle or maybe a different appreciation is someone like Susie Green Roebuck, who finished in the top ten, I believe, And it's not T11, something like that. But she won three Michigan women's PGA championships. She's a a very high-class player. I didn't know that offhand, but I had to look it up. But she never probably had an outlet to go play past the age of 40. She played four seasons on the LPGA. Her last season was like 20 years ago. And 22 years ago to have a college and that was it so what was her competitive outlet except to play in these kind of sectional regional events where she's apparently cleaned up but this was a chance for her to show off her talent to her kids who were right alongside of her I mean her three her three kids were right there in the fairway with her the whole way talking to her taking pictures with her having fun with her in between shots so she got to be a mom and let, kind of show off for her kids and she played great and now she has at least one event, and maybe, you know, they'll loosen up what happens for the senior LPGA championship, too, make it two events, but two big-time events for female golfers over the age of 45, the U.S. women, senior women's open case. but that they, they don't have to just be a regional name anymore. They could get on national television and show people, they're pretty damn good. They just went a different path in life, so... Uh, there was something for everybody. I mean, the, there was no reason to be upset if you were there, no matter what happened to you.
0: And I'll add in one more. Take the Kay Cockerels of the world, who knew that their competitive days were behind them, joined Golf Channel, Have has, I mean, she's a fantastic golf announcer, plays a ton recreationally, basically admitted that she thought that her um, playing days, you know, competitively were probably behind her. This gets formed, realize she's exempt. Takes her, clubs, takes her club to every single event she's worked this year and you know proudly played in this event and, and had a blast doing it. So it's not just the ones who want the icing on the cake of their career. It's the ones who had gone dormant competitively because they either went into another line of work or, or just left golf completely because there was no outlet for them to be competitive who suddenly now started grinding again for something.
1: Yeah, I mean, Kay, uh, by Jerry Fultz's
0: accounting, hadn't played competitive golf in 20 years. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, uh, and she made the cut. Yeah. She, uh, she was almost
1: the first-round leader. She played great.
0: Yeah, and and and, and in fact...
1: Jake Crafter played. She was the group behind on Friday. I followed Jane for nine holes. She played great. She didn't really have a competitive outlet after 40, uh, and, and now she's got one again. She's, she's really excited about it. And I also think about someone like Jane Getty's Who just came back to the LPGA after a stint in working as an executive at World Wrestling Entertainment? And she has a a reason to be competitive. She got in
0: uh, on exemption, and so she got to play. She did well. Um,
1: So I I think that this will get a little bit more refined in terms of quality of play. Not that the play was bad, but it it was just you could get the sense from a number of people like, hey, I haven't done this in a while. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and now, like you've mentioned, there's something to play for. There's something to shoot for. So hopefully this is maybe the start of a more refined Legends Tour schedule. You know, we've got these two majors. Maybe we can build some tournaments around that more than the few that there are already and create maybe a 10-tournament docket. And maybe somehow, somewhere along the way, there's one more major, a senior Brit- women's British of some kind, whatever, but some kind of one third, one more major. To build around and create a, a real schedule we want it, the champions tour came from basically the legends of golf in 1979 and then from that came the senior open and then came what we've got today as, as pga tour champions so it has to start somewhere it has to really develop from something and i finally this ground 12 support from the lpga for their legends tour and from the usga for this event hopefully that means something
0: and, and uh, here's our transition back to Carnoustie. Jerry Fultz, who will be a part of the Golf Channel uh, team this week, has his clubs with him because he's going to try next week to qualify for the Senior Open Championship at St. Andrews. So he and Kay have basically been uh, practice buddies on the road all year because they've both been grinding to in Kay's uh, in, uh, in, uh, case, case get ready and then and Jerry's case attempt to qualify for um, major senior open, So, fantastic uh, stuff for both, and I'm so glad you enjoyed your last 13 days golf-wise. Um, it's burnt, it's firm, it's fast. I've never seen a golf tournament looking like this. I don't think you've ever seen a golf tournament in, in your lifetime looking like this. Hoylake comes to mind. I have no idea what to expect this week, Ryan.
1: I... My thinking is, Going to be a pretty. It'll be the lowest scoring open at Carnoustie, and the only reason I say that is because you don't need driver to get around. The wind's not going to blow that much. The greens look like they've been watered. They were watered today. So they're trying to keep them alive, so it's not going to get a whole lot of unfair bounces. Just the, the fair number of it unfair bounces. So if you're a dialed-in player and you can get around with Fairy Woods all day, you could probably light this place up. I don't, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a 61. Uh, I really wouldn't. Yeah. And, I just, I just feel like you can get, you can get the course early. You have to hang on at the end, but if you get the course early and just get, you know, one birdie out of 15, 15, 17, hang on on 18, why not? I mean, it, it could happen. So, um, you know, a 480-yard finisher that plays like a driver wedge or three-wood, nine-iron-type hole all week, not that scary. So I have a feeling we're going to go deep this week, and that opens the door for a lot of different players. I, I This could be a, a tremendous amount of fun to watch.
0: It It, it really could, and it's going to bring... As Frank and, and, and uh, Brenda were talking last night on Live from it, it brings bunkers into play that are not normally in play. It brings all kinds of weird things. Could we have drivable par fours that would never be drivable par fours in America? Um... My last uh, podcast guest, Alex Lazon, was wondering if we're going to have an albatross this week. Um, not because you know, purely because of the clubs people could be hitting into par fives. That that holding a short iron obviously is a lot more likely than than holding a a long iron. There could be some wacky and really interesting golf this week. Um, a couple specifics here. Number one, does Francesco Molinari, who I would argue is the hottest player in the world right now, does his play on land carry over to this week, do you think?
1: I think he does. He has a few good finishes in the in the Open Championship, so I I, I don't think his style precludes him from being able to play well uh, you know, in a burnt-out circumstance. And frankly, form tends to kind of carry over in this championship, even if you are not particularly fond of Link's golf, I have no reason to believe he's not, but right. I think he's playing such great golf, there's no reason to think he can't be in the mix come Sunday, other than the fact that, I mean, and he, and he was willing to go low the last, um, last few weeks, when he obviously went really low at the National, yeah. and went low enough to tie for first in the B flight at, at the Deer, so... He's comfortable
0: going deep, and I think that might play into his hand. By the way, if you have not—by uh, uh, the way, on Ryan's podcast, not your last podcast, it was the previous one before that, where you talked about Tiger in your hometown for the last time. Was that two mm-hmm. podcasts ago? Was that
1: what?
0: Uh, two podcasts ago. I
1: believe. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So uh, go back nineteenth whole podcast. Two podcasts ago, Ryan talks about. Um, what it was like to have Tiger in his hometown for possibly the last time in his career with in his career with the national ending. Um, uh, y- y- you are a long hitter yourself, uh, so a do you think we're going to see the John Rahm method that he's hinted of guys hitting a lot of drivers? The rough's dry and wispy; you can be aggressive, or do you think we'll see guys lay back? And then you, being a long hitter yourself, would you be aggressive or would you lay back?
1: I would lay back
0: Um,
1: I would feel comfortable Hitting two iron all week And letting it run out 290, 300, 310 And just letting the ground do the work I understand the philosophy Behind hitting driver It takes almost all the bunkers out of play So You can just kind of think of it as Insurance against that Because those bunkers In the fairways or just off are, Are pretty penal I mean they can be half stroke penalties And so, and they're designed as such. They're not designed to be impediments. They're designed to be penalties. So if you think about it that way, if you just bash it out of trouble, then your worst-case scenario is you get maybe a not-good lie and probably thin rough because it's not very wet. I understand the theory. But if you do that, then you've got to have great control of your wedge game all week. You can't make a mistake because if you've got wedge in your hand... You kind of get juiced up and think, okay, I'm going to go raise the pin, or I'm going to go for it. And if you make a mistake, then you open yourself up to a lot of potential problems. So I think both methods can work. I don't see why they can't, but I feel like there's more pressure on the game if you're hitting driver more often. Now, if you just hit driver on the two par five, okay, I think that makes a lot of sense. You just get out there as far as you can, Keep it in play, and it, like you talked about earlier, thinking about an albatross, hitting a short iron in, you should make four. End of story. So, I I would probably do a mix. I would probably lay up more often than not, and find maybe three or four holes where I hit driver. I'd probably do it on. Consider doing it on 18, depending on how much it was running out for me, and maybe one other hole, and that that's about it.
0: Uh, talking to Ryan Boundsy here, obviously about the Open Championship at Carnoustie. Um, Tiger. A lot of people are saying this is Hoylake. He hit one driver that week. He was great with the irons. He he hit irons and and, and fairways off the tee. This looks like Hoylake. This is Hoylake. I asked Bob Harrick of ESPN.com, who's as close to the Tiger camp as anybody, the other day. Does this remind you of of, of Hoylake? And, and he basically said yes and no. Carnoustie's more penal. And, you know, he's, 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 he's got to be accurate. I am of the theory that this is Hoylick except for one thing, and you saw it firsthand at, uh, at uh, the National. It was, what, 13 or 14 both days, and he missed those irons off the tee, right? Um, yeah. he, he, it just, his iron play off the tee has not been his usual consistent self in this comeback. If that suddenly shows up, then I am fully of the belief that this will work. But right now, I think his iron play is too raggedy at times to guarantee that this is Hoylake Part 2. What's, what's your thoughts on Tiger, this golf course, and the comparisons to Hoylake?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, definitely more penal. I mean, Carnoustie has more problems awaiting Tiger than Royal Liverpool ever could. Um, so he's got to be accurate. He does have to be a little bit more strategic. In that regard But he's saying he's hitting a 3-iron three 330 yards So if he's hitting A 2-iron, the, the gap or low He's hitting for TaylorMade That's called 340 uh, I mean he could probably Get out of the way Of, of a lot of things uh, At Carnousie So then that puts into play You know his iron work Mid-iron, short-iron Into a lot of green Driver a couple of times on the par five. I I, I like it. I, I think it's very gettable. Um, but I also think it's very gettable for everybody. So he's got to feel comfortable that. So even he, he wants more often than not, he wants to win a golf tournament at ten twelve under par, not twenty potentially twenty under par. So I think that might make him a little uncomfortable. It, we'll just have to see where things stand when when he gets off on Thursday. What's the lead? What's the what's the course playing like and then make a determination from there about how aggressive to be because he can't do what he's done in majors in years past when he's been successful and just feel it out on Thursday and then turn on the Jets. You you gotta go at it from the first hole. So if he gets around and you know, Bogey's the first and a birdie here, and he's like even after seven, like you're already probably four behind, buddy. Like you gotta move it. So That, for me, more than anything, he's got to make the adjustment to the aggressive nature of modern major championship golf and just go for it. And if he can do that successfully, coming out the gate, I think he's got a chance. But if he doesn't, if he struggles putting, if he can't get off the tee, no amount of good iron play is going to save him. He needs to be able to do the start and end of holes better than he's been doing them.
0: Uh, we're going to combine two of my favorite questions. Who do you like this week and, and who do you not like this week?
1: I probably like far too many players to be truthful. <laughs> uh, I, I just feel like it, it, if you're accurate enough, you can play your style of golf and, and succeed here. I'm, I think John Robb can be successful. He's a very accurate driver of the golf ball. He eats it over all the stuff and just has wedges into every hole. He's a great putter. He could tear this thing apart. Brooks Koepka could destroy this place. Dustin Johnson could. Zach Johnson has four top fives in the last five years, of the, or excuse me, four top 15 in the last five years of this tournament, including a W. He He's playing pretty well. You, you should like Molinari. I like Tiger. I like Rory. Um, there are just way too many people to like as opposed to not like, and I think that's what makes this the best major is, if the U.S. Open kind of figured, all right, if the wind's going to blow, someone's going to get screwed. We're not going to get that here. So half the field won't be screwed. There are people who play Augusta better than others, so we know who those people are. Everybody else is screwed. We're not going to get that here. Carnoustie is inherently tough, so it's going to be unfair at times. But it seems like with the way it's playing firm and fast, you could play a couple of different ways that you'll be successful. So I just think there are probably a good 30 people that if they won this, they like, yeah, that sounds about right. Mm. And there are fewer people, I mean, of course, I think Bubba Watson won't win the <laughs> British Open. He's not ready for this. He's never going to do it. No. Uh, yeah, I think about someone like Tyrrell Hatton who puts a lot of pressure on himself in these situations just as not figured out how to calm down. Probably not going to do it. I would probably look past Dedecky Matsuyama, even though it sounds like a mistake um, given his ball striking capability. But maybe look past him. But beyond that, I mean, I I can't see a reason to dislike a lot of players uh, because if they play to what they're capable of doing on a golf course, it's going to let them do that because of how firm it is. I I feel like it's pretty wide open.
0: Hey, uh quickly because I I uh, know that um you have to run. Does John Rom have the temperament to win a major? Because every time John Rom and Bo Hostler to me have the same problem. They are way too into it. They have way too much emotion, too high, too low. And that's my concern with John Rom. He's got all the talent in the world to win a major. He's got the the right kind of style of play to potentially win this week. But I don't know when I don't know when he's gonna throw his next temper tantrum. And that, to me, is what's holding him back right now from uh, getting that first major.
1: Yeah, perhaps. Um, He's still got to work on that. And when things go sideways, he seems to just go into the tank. Like, he can't do it for one or two holes where it's like, all right, i just got to be mad for a hole and then I'll be okay again. He gets into the tank for a lot of holes. But the one thing that kind of buoyed my hopes is how he rebounded the Irish Open, and he seemed like he was done for, got up to a bad start, had another ROM blow-up hole, and was like, alright, this is going to trail off into disaster, and he recovered and nearly got into a playoff. So, it can be done, he can do it, he can come back from mistakes, but he's obviously a lot more potent and a lot more difficult to beat when he's playing at the top of his game, so... Tarnussi is able to throw you pretty much anything, any number you can dream up on the scorecard. If he can avoid more than one big number, he'll be okay. But if he gets into a position where he can win and that big number comes on Saturday or Sunday, I don't think he's going to feel the same way as he did at Valley Lesson. He's going to feel maybe like he did uh, when he's blown up in other tournaments, like at Pebble Beach. So um, I think he can do it. I, I just he's still got a lot to work through. He's still a very raw product, but I think he can be very successful here.
0: My winner of the open is John Rahm, which <laughs> makes sound hypocritical considering the last two minutes. But uh, I, I think he gets it done this week. I—I—I I, I don't know why. I—I'm with you. This is wide open, but that's my pick. So, my final question, Ryan Ballinger, who's your winner this week?
1: I'm gonna stick with Brooks Koepka.
0: Um, Two straight majors, huh?
1: He's, he's relaxed. He has a good finish in this championship. Played well here last year. Um, he doesn't seem to really be bothered at all that it's a major. Um, he's re- again rested. Hadn't played since Travelers, and he's got nothing to lose. I mean, everyone's like, "Oh, well, you're just you're you're the U.S. Open guy," but he's got tons of good finishes in other majors, particularly this one in the PGA. And he continues to get be better at playing major championships. And I think we underestimate Brooks Kepka at our peril. And at a time where Jordan Spieth is kind of going on a downward trend, a guy close to, the closest guy to his age other than JT is Kepka and he's going on the upward trend. So I think he likes these kinds of situations. I think he's gonna like playing this style of golf again. I like I think he liked doing it on the European tour. He did very well in an Alfred Dunhill-Links championship, so, uh, which has Carnusky on that. Right. Um, I, I just think he's, he's unflappable, and he's going to play his brand of golf and do it unapologetically, so I love his
0: chance. Uh, uh, that's a good point. Um, uh, uh with the Alfred Dunhill-Links, which does give some of these European tour players, albeit in way different conditions, obviously, because there's amateurs and celebrities involved, but still, um, It is an interesting look at at, uh, how some guys may do. Ryan Balangie, as always, thanks for coming on Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeremy. And thank you all for uh, listening to Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. Enjoy the Open Thursday, 1.30 a.m. Eastern on Golf Channel.